This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our study of his word. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. You have breathed out these words in the original languages through the authors of scripture, and you have overseen their writing in such a way as to protect it from error. You have also preserved it, protected it down through the ages that we might have the privilege of having these translations of your word before us, that we may know your truth, know your word, and that by it we may know you, we may know how to have eternal life, and we may understand the riches and the blessings that we have in Jesus. And Father, we are so thankful for all that we have. We're thankful that in your word you give us a way to think about everything in your creation. And as we continue to probe in different areas of life, different areas of creation, on the basis of your word, we pray that you would just help us to understand these things and open our the eyes of our understanding in our souls that we may perceive the truth of your word in all of its fullness. And above all, we pray that as we think through these things, that everything focuses ultimately on your grace and on the great provision of redemption that you have given us. We pray this in the name of our great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Usually I begin by asking you to turn to a passage in Scripture. If you wish, you can turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, but we won't be there for very long. As you know, if you have been here during the last uh, uh, year, year and a half, we've been going through Colossians, and as we've come to this last chapter, there is a focus here on some extremely practical and significant uh, applications based on all that Paul has said already in this epistle about what we have in Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ is the superior person of the universe. And to understand what that means is more than just a few academic or theological principles. It, it truly, radically revolutionizes how we approach every dimension of our life. And Paul comes back to this in terms of its application in this third chapter, talking about the characteristics and qualities that should be exemplified in our new life 
in Christ. Back in the earlier part of the chapter, we saw him teach about putting to death the members of our body which are related to uh, carnality and the flesh and to removing these qualities and characteristics from our life and then putting on a new set of values and characteristics and qualities. And in this last part of the of the third chapter, there's a series of different uh, exhortations. And we're in verse 16, which I think is one of the most significant of all because what follows after this verse are really uh, a listing of a variety of different consequences or results of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. One of the things I talked about when I talked about that initial phrase was that this means at the very least that we should be regularly in church, in Bible study, in Bible class, whether we have to listen via the Internet or whether we're watching videos or listening to MP3s or whatever it should be, that this is something that should dominate all of our lives. It is an organizing absolute in our scale of values, in our priorities, as we look at our lives with all of the busyness, all of the things required of us in terms of our careers and our families, that which should uh, be above everything else that organizes and gives meaning to everything else is our relationship with God. And that relationship with God is to be based upon knowledge. And that knowledge comes only from his word. And it's not just an academic knowledge. It's not just an awareness of facts about God or salvation or the spiritual life, but that this has become internalized so that God's word and God's thinking has so, as Paul puts it in Romans 12.2, has so renovated or renewed our thinking that God's thinking becomes second nature to us. That doesn't just happen. The Holy Spirit isn't going to wave a magic wand, tap you on the head, and presto, change You think differently. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take a recognition that no matter what else I get done in the next month, if I don't get this done, nothing else really matters. And we have to get to that point or we don't really get anywhere in the spiritual life. We have to let the word of Christ make its home in our life and in our thinking. Now, the first area of result that Paul mentions here is that in wisdom, we will teach and admonish one another. This is the horizontal value of the body of Christ in worship together. We will teach and admonish one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. So singing is not seen here as some sort of secondary thing that we do at church. It is seen as something that is both here and in the parallel passage in Ephesians 5 as something that is listed in both places as one of the first results or consequences of the person who is filled by means of the Spirit with the word of Christ. So it's not dependent upon whether or not you think you can sing well or I think you can sing well. We are to sing. It is an expression of our response 
to the understanding of what God has done. In the Psalms, it's frequently associated with the command to rejoice. It is an overt uh, display of our internal joy. And we find this throughout the scripture. So singing and the and using hymns and the w- singing part of our worship is not just something that is part of tradition or this is what Christians do because that's what other generations have done, but it's an integral part of worship. And this tells us also in this passage something about the nature of singing. Now, this is where things get a little controversial in our world today because In uh, the recent uh, decades, we've had a rise of something that is called today by the name of contemporary Christian worship or contemporary Christian music. And I've spoken uh, about this a number of times, and this is very important because I constantly get questions from other pastors. I get questions from individuals. This issue pops up in one form or another at least once a year because there is this is so dominated modern ecclesiology and church life and especially ministry to college age young people and we constantly hear uh people say things like well we need to give them the music of their generation that's really a myth that's a distortion it is an absolute untruth it's a counterfeit When in the history of Christianity, just think with me back to the time of the apostles. From that time to the present, when in the world did any generation of Christians ever have this concept that in order to get people attracted to the Word of God, we need to have music that is the music of their generation? Well, first of all, To even buy into that, you have to be historically ignorant, culturally ignorant, philosophically ignorant, and theologically ignorant. Now, I'm not being caustically judgmental with that. I'm just stating a fact. And sadly, because of the degeneration of our education system in this country over the last 50 years, most of us, myself included in areas, are culturally ignorant, philosophically ignorant, historically ignorant, feel especially theologically ignorant because these things aren't taught anymore. And there's something really sad, I think, and tragic, and we need that's something we need to pay attention to in our churches that is happening is that we are becoming musically ignorant. Think about this a minute. Many of us are have been around long enough to where if we think back to our years in elementary school, it was standard curriculum once, twice, three times a week for a music teacher to come in. We didn't wait till we got to junior high or high school to be part of a choir or music class. And they would come in and teach us simple things about music. Uh, even though I took piano lessons from the time I was about eight years old, uh, and learned to read music there, I was also taught how to read music at about the same time in school, to looking at the notes. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but I would suggest that maybe um, half the people in here don't know how to read music. How in, in, in previous generations, you'd be considered woefully ignorant. You just haven't been educated. 
Now, we've lost that in our culture. We don't think that's a necessity, and that's exemplified by the fact that we don't see this in standard curricula today. And so when it comes to how does this impact the church, you come to church, you open your hymnal, you see the words, but the average believer can't read the notes that are there. They only pick up the tune as they hear the organist or the piano or other people sing, but they can't read the music. That's terrible. That's culturally being culturally impoverished. You really don't know music. No matter how much you like certain kinds of music or listen to the radio or your favorite uh, pop artist, you really don't know music. You can't read it. Your culture has left you impoverished and ignorant. That's sad. And we're looking at a whole new generation that's probably under the age of 40 that where this is uh, this characterizes them in, in, in tremendous ways. Not only that, but think about the fact that when we have uh, someone play the organ or piano here, we have three ladies who play at times. Our primary organist, Sally, plays most of the time, but we have two other ladies who can do backup. And they're not young, pardon me, ladies. They're of a generation, though, that was taught... Usually, many people were taught how to play piano and to play accompaniment. Yet, when you get into the generation following them, this was not true. And you get to the next generation, it's even less true. And so we're going to wake up one day, not too far from now. In fact, some congregations are already facing this, and they we can't find anybody to play the piano, the organ, or anything to accompany the congregation when we sing. Their ability to fulfill a significant mandate in the scriptures related to, to singing, musical worship, has, has been significantly impacted by the deterioration of the external culture. So there's always this relationship that happens between the two. Now, people can still sing, but unfortunately that same generation hasn't been trained to sing either. Uh, they didn't learn harmony, things like that. In previous generations, this would happen at home. They didn't have televisions. They would, somebody in the family played the piano. The family would gather around. They would sing. They would learn how to make harmony. And in churches, and we have to address this somehow. I don't know how. Well, we have to address this. In many, many congregations today, uh, we've done away with the evening service on Sunday. Some of this was done for a philosophical reason. Others, it was done for a pragmatic reason. People just didn't show up anymore. They were too busy. The world we live in in the, 19, in the 2000s is very different from the world preceding the 1970s. People don't have that much disposable time. A lot of people in urban areas have long commutes. They get up at 435 on Monday morning to make a commute into work. And to be at church on Sunday night is is something that is less convenient because they need to be home, relaxed, their last stop. And I understand that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what happened traditionally and historically in churches was that on Sunday night, so a little more relaxed, and the music leader, the choir director, would t- use that time because it was a little less formal service to introduce new hymns to the congregation. He would use that time to teach them harmonies and to see. Now, men, this is your part. The choir, the men would sing, 
and the men in the congregation could hear their part. Then he would do the same thing for the ladies. And so often when you look at your uh, hymnal and you see in the chorus, there is a descant. There's a uh, main chorus, and then there's an echo. There's a maybe a, a, a women's line, a men's line, for example, in the uh, hymn, I'll Hail the Power of Jesus' Name, in the diadem version, which is the one this congregation is normally singing. We're going to sing the coronation version at the end of the service today, but in the diadem version, uh, there is an echo, and it's gorgeous. But if you don't know how to read music then the men can't read the male line and the women can't read the women's line and it just sort of falls apart. That is tragic. We're dumbing down the worship of God through music in the church because the culture has dumbed us down. These are challenges that we must face as congregations in the in the future. And I'm not talking about just us, but as I talk to other pastors around the country who have congregations our size or to a little bit larger, to a little bit smaller, they're, they're all facing this. They're losing their accompanists and they're facing congregations who don't really know how to sing. And in some cases, they don't, can't even find somebody who can lead the singing. And so this mandate that we have in scripture, this aspect of our spiritual life becomes terribly diluted and diminished because we don't have people who can help us and lead us and guide us and teach us in this area. And we have to figure out how to solve this problem or we are going to be an extremely impoverished, spiritually impoverished congregation. One of the great things that happened in in the history of of music and worship within the church was that God brought forth a young man at the turn of the 18th century. For those of you who are numerically challenged, that's when we went from the 1600s to the 1700s. This young man was a gifted wordsmith, and he had a tremendous musical talent. And ability. And beyond that, he was also brought up within a solid Christian home where he was taught sound biblical teaching. In fact, one of the earliest charts that broke down the eras of human history according to dispensations was a chart developed by this man. He recognized that there was sort of a problem with the music that was sung in churches at that time. His family wasn't part of the established church in England. They were what was called dissenters. That is, they were the part of the evangelical minority that did not associate with the uh, state church of the Anglican church in England. And this was also a time when the the monarchy and the uh, hierarchy within the Anglican church was putting a lot of pressure on those that would not conform. In later generations, uh, those evangelicals were referred to as nonconformists as opposed to those who conformed to the uh, Anglican uh, worship. And so he was part of this dissenter group. And, and typically in the smaller congregations of the dissenters, they, um, 
they would sing psalms. They're very conservative. They would only sing God's words. They would only sing the psalms. And the way that, because, again, you have a culture that was musical, a little bit musically uh, unlearned. They didn't know how to read music. They might not have books that had the music in them. And the music was somewhat stilted, but they would only sing from the Psalms of, 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 of David, the Psalms of the Word of God. And so the song leader would, would sing the words and then uh, one line, and then the congregation would echo that. And then he would sing the next line, and then the congregation would sing the next line. And they only sang from, from the Psalms. And this seemed a little bit stilted, and it left out a whole realm of doctrine that is part of New Testament theology. It was therefore theologically uh, constricting, but it wasn't really allowing the congregation to exercise its full musical abilities and talents across the spectrum. And so this young man began to, as he meditated, he memorized almost all the Psalms and many other portions of Scripture. And in the process of thinking through, meditating upon the Psalms as he memorized them, he would write in imitation of the Psalms, he would write words for new hymns. They were called the hymns of men by those who didn't think this was proper or appropriate. And this brought about a a whole revolution in hymnody. This man's name was Isaac Watts. In 1707, he wrote the words to um, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, which is the hymn that we just sang. We sung that for years. And it is typically sung in many congregations at the time of communion. Do you know why that is? He wrote it to be sung at a communion service. And he, the music that he wrote was not taken over. He didn't go out and find a tune that was already there and bring it in uh, to, to this particular song. But he was somewhat inspired or influenced by uh, a Gregorian chant. That is, the music had a history that goes back all the way into the uh, deep recesses of the early church. Now, here you have a piece of music that even though it wasn't a Gregorian chant anymore, it was inspired and based upon a Gregorian chant. He didn't say, hmm, we need to have music of our generation. He goes back over a thousand years for the, for the music and the words, those wonderful, tremendous, doctrinally satisfying words that are there have been sung by maybe 15 generations since he wrote them. And no previous generation to the current one said, I think we need to sing something in the language of our generation. They weren't that arrogant. You understand the arrogance that is there. It is a rejection of everything that Christianity stood for for 1,900 years to say in their arrogance that we're going to throw all of that out because it doesn't speak to me. So I have to have something that fits the pattern of what is deemed popular on the radio. Not only that, but the modern the modern paradigm says that the reason we choose these things is somehow to make the unbeliever, the visitor, feel more comfortable so that he's not hearing 
music that is dissimilar from what he listens to on the radio every day. Well, wait a minute. If the music that you listen to on the radio every day is a product of a pagan, atheistic, anti-God, postmodern culture, then why do you want to use that kind of music as a frame for the eternal truths of the Word of God? Talk about culture clash. The words, if you're using the words of Scripture and tying them to the music of this generation, you're creating one of the greatest conflicts that you can in art. But we go back to something even more basic. We come back to uh, what Isaac Watts did and the, the hymn of When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, and we listen to the music, and we just read the words independent of the music. And I would doubt that there was anyone here that wouldn't say, that's really beautiful. Now, when we say something is beautiful, what I want us to think about a little bit this morning, and I just want to introduce this, this is a difficult thing to think through for many of us. For some of us, it's going to be radically challenging, but it's important for us to think through this. Whenever we say something is beautiful, we are not only making an artistic evaluation, we are also making an ethical determination. Now think about that. I'll explain that a little bit. I want to start here with a, uh, I want you to think about a conversation. Just think with me as we go through this. In this conversation, you're sitting at Starbucks one morning and you're overhearing a conversation at the next table between two people. They're getting involved in a political discussion in an election year that has reality. And they're talking about the role, beginning to debate the role of the federal government when it comes to providing health care for the citizens of the nation. Now, aside from whatever political issues may be involved in that particular topic, one person says, that, oh, this is wonderful. This is fabulous. The people who have no money, the people who are without means, are going to have access to all of the fabulous, wonderful health care that this nation provides. They say that this is a wonderful thing. The other person says, I couldn't disagree more. National health care in and of itself is wrong, inherently wrong. Now, here you have two different descriptions of national health care. One person says it's wonderful. The other person says it's wrong. Now, what do these two words have in common, wonderful and wrong? What they have in common is that both of them express a value system. They express judgments from two different people based upon the thinking, the values, and the beliefs that each one of these two people has. And so when they use these terms, wrong, wonderful, what they are implying by using those terms is that there is some sort of external standard beyond the existence of either one of them to which they are appealing. Problem is, in a postmodern world today, there's no belief in an external standard. So when someone says this is wrong and another person says this is right or wonderful, all they're doing, all they can possibly do in terms of the modern mindset is just express an opinion, educated, 
uninformed, doesn't matter, no matter how educated or informed either might be, in our current dominant worldview of postmodernism, there are no absolutes. So that the very best, all it can be is two different opinions. So who's right? Well, you, every, anybody. Because there's no, nothing beyond each individual. Every person has their own value system. Now, as Christians, we reject that out of hand because we believe there is an external value system, right? And one of the big debates in the last 20 or 30 years in Christianity or one of the issues is that we reject postmodernism and its uh, attendant multiculturalism because they reject and their very presuppositional base the reality of absolutes. And we believe in absolutes. So the evangelical church has taken a stand and has said, we reject this whole idea of multiculturalism as a value system because it's basically relativism. It rejects any, any kind of absolute. Okay, we'll hold that thought and go to our second example. We're still sitting in Starbucks, and now there's two students who've come in and sit down next to us, and they're having uh, a discussion after class of a reading assignment that they've had. They've had to read uh, a poem. One student expresses the view that the reading, this reading assignment, this poem was just inspiring, and they were overjoyed as they read it. The other one strongly disagreed and said that the poem was not only disgusting, it was destructive. They have completely opposite views of this, this poetry. So again, we have words that are expressed for evaluation, on the one hand, inspiring and joyful, and on the other hand, disgusting and destructive. Each of these terms is relating opinions based upon, once again, the value system of the individual. Now, let's think that in this instance, we'll do two scenarios. In this first scenario, the poem in question is a late 19th century poem written by an American patriot extolling the wonders and the beauties of, of America and American culture and the realization of manifest destiny as the, the American people have now stretched from shore to shore, from sea to shining sea, and God has richly blessed the nation. This is the person who says that this poem is, is uh, inspiring and joyful. But the other person reacted and says, no, it's disgusting, it's destructive. See, that person is operating on a different value system. For them, it's much better to leave everything in its original state of nature, that, that uh, the indigenous people should be left the way they were, the, 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 the Native Americans should be, still be allowed to hunt the buffalo and migrate around the country, and all that has happened with the uh, Europeans coming is that we've destroyed these wonderful, beautiful cultures. And so for them, they read the poem, and it's disgusting, it's destructive. The values that they hold shape the way they perceive this poetry. Now, 
Let's switch the poem, and we now discover that the poem was written by a Russian Marxist from the early 20th century. So in this view, the person who says that it's, uh, it's inspiring and produces joy is a person who's bought into Marxist-Leninist views. They're, um, they're valuing the worker, the laborer, and uh, they are buying into a, a different worldview. The other person who sees it as destructive and disgusting is a person who, is, who sees the horrors and the dangers of Marxism. Now, what I want you to understand from these two illustrations is that the values that these people present, whether they say something is inspiring and joyful or destructive and disgusting, that those judgments are preceded by a worldview and a value system. Now, in the second illustration, we've got a work of art. It's a poem. It's not something that is necessarily viewed by most people as an ethical issue. And yet, listen to the terms that we all agree are valid terms to use. Uh, the, the something is uh, wonderful, it's joyful, it is inspiring. These have ethical connotations. And the other terms that something is disgusting, it's destructive, it's wrong, those have ethical connotations. It is... We're making a judgment on something that is a work of art, and we're using terms to describe it that indicate an external value system of absolutes, whether they believe in them or not. It, it presents that, and this, this value system is using ethical terms to judge qualities of beauty and aesthetics. Now, I hope you understand where we're going with this. In much of modern civilization since the early 1700s, aesthetics has been separated from ethics. Classically, if we go back historically in the study of just philosophy, and philosophy is the study of the great questions and issues of life apart from divine revelation, that you look at classical philosophy, Plato, Aristotle, they developed the study, the thinking of, of what doesn't, isn't separated out as a separate study called aesthetics until the 1700s. But they developed a, a, a philosophy of beauty. And even though they disagreed and different philosophers disagreed on what the specific qualities were that made something beautiful, they all agreed that there was an external, objective, universal standard of beauty. They just didn't know how to get to it. But they all agreed that beauty wasn't in the eye of the beholder. Now, that's very important. If I can just get that across this morning, then I've accomplished my task because that is something that is inherent in our culture. We think beauty is in the eye of the beholder. From the end of the classic period of the Greek philosophers going up through the Neoplatonists through the Middle, and through the Middle Ages, the thinking of Plato and Aristotle and others was pretty much assumed. They might disagree upon the specifics of how to create objective standards of what is beautiful, 
But they all understood that there was a universal beauty. We just had to figure out how to define it. But there's a universal object. Beauty is not in the eye of the perceiver. It's in the it's it's external. Christians would argue that it was in the person of God. That beauty is in the very nature, the very essence of God. And so beauty is not something that is that is a product of each individual opinion or perception, but it existed in the mind of God. Now, you wouldn't have a problem with me saying that if I substituted truth or knowledge for beauty. Truth, of, Obviously, there's an external standard for truth. It's in the mind of God. He knows all things, and he is, God is true. That's the objective standard. We have to come to understand. The only way to come to understand what truth is is to know God. And same with knowledge. Knowledge exists in the mind of God. And so we must come to understand who God is. And only by understanding who God is can we understand what true knowledge is. Beauty. Oh, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. See, in the early 1700s in philosophical thought, we began to see, and this is, the, this is in the middle of the, of the Enlightenment, truth is no longer located out there in the mind of God. It is now shifting to human perception of, of uh, experience or reason, empir- empir- enlightenment, empiricism, and rationalism. And this impacted their view of beauty. And this is the root of the idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And so from the, this develops more and more. And by the time you get to Immanuel Kant at the end of the 1700s and on into the 1800s, this idea related to aesthetics, because now aesthetics is separated from ethics and takes on its own discipline. And the ultimate values for aesthetics are located not in an external objectivity, but internally. Now, there's a sense in which beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but it's a small sense. You know, you and I can look at something and we have different perspectives on what we like or dislike. That's a matter of taste, but there are external absolutes. And when we look at Scripture, what I want you to realize is that throughout Scripture, there's an emphasis on God and the things of God as something that is that is beautiful. We need to address this issue of what beauty is. What exactly is the concept of, of beauty? Something is beautiful when we take pleasure in something for what it is. We can, for example, you all know I... I I love Macintosh computers. I've had a Mac since my first Mac SE back in 1987. And when uh, Bill Gates finally decided that, that DOS really was neither beautiful nor functional, now I know a couple of geeks will disagree with me, but in terms of everyday usage, MS-DOS was neither beautiful nor functional. He decided to copy what Mac did. So he came up with Windows 95. Windows 95 just made DOS look and act like it was a Mac, but it was neither. It wasn't beautiful. That was one of the wonderful, wonderful things about Apple uh, products and what Steve Jobs did is he had a sense that this needed to not only be functional, but it needed to have a sense of beauty. You just look at some of their products and they're aesthetically designed. But, but I look at my computer and I don't look at it and say that's beautiful. 
It's great. It's wonderful. It accomplishes a task. It enables me to do great things. So we say these things are good and wonderful and useful. It's a utilitarian idea, but that doesn't make something beautiful. It's beautiful is something like a sunset, something like sitting out in in the wilderness somewhere and seeing a, a gorgeous landscape in a waterfall, a pastoral setting, even out in the desert. And almost anyone would, can look at scenes of this nature and agree this is something that is beautiful. It's something we take pleasure in. We enjoy for the sake of what is there, not because it does anything or provides anything for us. We delight in it just because of what it is. Now, this idea is inherent in beauty, that something is beautiful because we delight in it. Something is beautiful because it provides pleasure, it provides joy, it gives us enjoyment. Now, Scripture talks about these ideas. It it uses the term beauty in many places related to God, but it also associates it with these other ideas. For example, in Psalm 1611, David writes, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. Just being in the presence of God brings joy to the soul because of the beauty of God. Uh, at your right hand, the, psalm, the verse goes on to say, are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 43.4 says, Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. So it expresses these ideas related to the, the values inherent within God. Psalm 8.1, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. God is excellent. God is glorious. These terms are often used together in uh, numerous passages where you almost have to pile up different adjectives to express the glory, the majesty, the splendor of God. All of these terms just, just overlap one another. First Chronicles 16.29, we read, Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, I would suggest that very few of us have thought about beauty and holiness together. But that is a literal translation. That's what most of your versions have. In the beauty of holiness. God's holiness is called beautiful. That implies that beauty is located in the very essence of God. It's not some external standard. It's not something that is determined by the eye of the beholder. It's also implied in passages like Exodus 28, verses 2 and 40, where God describes and commands that as the tabernacle is built and the uh, furniture is designed and the clothing for Aaron is, is made, that it is for glory and beauty. And often these two terms, yafeh, which is the word for beauty, and chavod, for glory, are brought together uh, in a synonymous relationship. Psalm 96.6 says, Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. 
Now, we need to wrap up this morning because it's going late because we had communion, and I just wanted to nail this one thing. When we talk about music and we talk about singing to the Lord, to, we, we, we ask questions like, what is appropriate to sing in worship? And what is appropriate is that which gives glory to God, which somehow reflects an external objective standard of beauty. In recent years and discussions I've had with pastors and in books that I have read, um, I often have had pastors who struggle with this say, we need to figure out what the objective borderline markers are for, for what's, what's excellent music. We need to be able to identify some of those things objectively, and that's true. And then when I read in some other books, and one that came out recently uh, called uh, Why Johnny Can't Sing Hymns Anymore, the author overuses the terms trite and cliche and trivial, but there really aren't any other words in the English language that convey that, those same meanings, despite some uh, opinions by some that rubbish and garbage would be appropriate. Uh, they really are not synonyms to trite, trivial, or cliche. And yet I would suggest that for most of us in this congregation, we wouldn't know the difference between a piece of music that was trivial and one that wasn't. But yet when you go out to eat, I would suggest that you know the difference between a steak at Saltgrass Steakhouse and a steak at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. Now, if you are going to uh, be, have some, put someone in charge who's going to plan a meal, are you going to put someone in charge who can't tell the difference between a Burger King Whopper or Dairy Queen, uh, whatever, hamburger, and, and Beck's Prime? Are you going to choose somebody who can't tell the difference between a sawgrass steakhouse steak and a Ruth's Chris steakhouse? No, you, don't, you know, not all of us can really distinguish all of these things. But you want somebody in charge who knows what good food is and can provide quality. It may not be on the same level as a five-star restaurant, but it's going to be done well. And you want somebody who understands the difference and they uh, they have the taste buds and, and the training and understanding of food preparation to produce something that's quality. Sadly, in many churches, where, especially small churches, you have a whole congregation, including the pastor, who musically can't tell the difference between a Dairy Queen hamburger and a Beck's Prime. And so they don't see that this is important. But, that's, but are they operating on an objective value system or a subjective value system? See, they've contradicted their whole framework of Christianity because they're operating on a subjective value system. We need to have people who really know good music. And that doesn't mean it's classical, it's Bach or Handel or Mozart, but it's good, it's musically good and well-crafted music. It could be simple. It can be sophisticated, but it's good music, and the words are good music. And thankfully, God has given us people in this congregation and others associated with this music who give me great advice on these things, and we select hymns to, to try to meet a standard. But at the very core of this debate that rages in evangelical churches is a misunderstanding of this principle. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. The value of good music and determination of what makes good music good music is because it fits an external objective higher standard. 
Now, just because you and I don't have the skill, the training, the background to understand that and to hear it doesn't mean it's not there. It's there, and it's theologically demonstrable. But sadly, in the course of evangelical Christianity and Protestant Christianity, we really have not done very well at developing a biblical view of beauty. And so I'm challenging you with that this morning. This is what we need to have. This is why I stress this. This is not optional. The Scripture says we're to do everything for the glory of God, and there's no asterisk with a footnote except your singing. It's all part of our spiritual life. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning and to think about these things and to be challenged about the truth of your word and what your word says and to be challenged that we need to do all things to the best of our ability and to glorify you and that there are external standards. Father, above all things, we recognize that that when you created, you created all things and they were good, and that word good also implies beauty. But ugliness entered in when sin came in and corruption entered in. And ever since the fall, there has been ugliness in creation as well as beauty. But redemption comes because that sin penalty was paid for by Christ on the cross so that even as we look at the cross and see the horrors of the physical and spiritual suffering, we can also say, as the psalmist does, that the Messiah is beautiful because of what he does. This implies an external standard. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted Christ. His payment on the cross was for you as well. He died for everybody's sin so that by simply trusting in him, you can have eternal life. You can make that eternal life yours right now, right where you sit, by simply trusting in him. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've studied today and that our thoughts about you and upon you would be, uh, would be strengthened and would be enlarged as, as a result of our study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.